presents Vampire the Masquerade Hellfire Nights The Bardic College presents Vampire the Masquerade, Hellfire Nights, FAQ for the fans. Uh, my name is Mike, and I've been playing the part of Dr. Horatio Jackal. And as I'm sure many of you are, I am new to the vampire system. So I'm sitting down tonight with our keeper, Raz, to go over some of the terms and history involved with Vampire the Masquerade. How are you doing tonight, Raz? I'm great. Uh, thanks, Mike, for doing this for their, uh, the people that listen to the Bardic College shows. Uh, and I'm happy to explain whatever I can without giving away too many spoilers. All right. Well, I have uh, just kind of a couple of questions here, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. Uh, the first thing I think the people are asking is, um, with Vampire the Masquerade, can you tell us a little bit about the system itself? Sure. So Vampire the Masquerade, uh, since its release uh, 35 years ago, roughly, uh, has gone through a bunch of editions, just like any other gaming, you know, RPG system. In the case of Vampire the Masquerade, the system we are using is an older one, second edition. That's really when the game kind of came on the scene super hardcore. It was being featured at conventions, it was being played in LARPing situations overnight, uh, tabletop had exploded, and it was really comes out of the world of uh, Dungeons and Dragons and people who always didn't want to always be the hero. They wanted to experience um, a culture that allowed them to be to go into their darker personas and play things really that, you know, in Dungeons and Dragons, you just don't always have the opportunity to do. So that's where Vampire sort of came out of. And the creative minds that came up with the game were, were, were really targeting a subgenre, never expecting it to explode the way it did. But that's what there's that's what happened. So I fell in love with it. I was very involved with uh, White Wolf. And Night Owl back then when those companies were still involved with the project. Right now, the system is on at 5th edition. And it does play a little differently. There's not quite as many clans. So I'm, I appreciate that we're getting a chance to discuss this because people that may know Vampire in its current system and style may be hearing us saying, I don't remember those in the rules. And it's not that they're not in your rules. It's just they're in ours. So... <laughs> Gotcha. So speaking of clans, or as uh, Horatio might call them, the families, the extended families and whatnot. Yes, yes. Uh, all these families or clans of uh, vampires, are they arranged into political factions? Yes. So there are two major political groups that control the night around the world for vampire society, and that's the Camarilla and the Sabat. Our game focuses on a Camarilla-controlled city, which is the larger political faction, having more clans or families included in it, seven to be exact. Uh, those families, just as a rundown, are, you know, Bruja, Malkavian, Nosferatu, Toreador, Tremere, Ventru, Gangrel. So you have these seven families, and each are unique. Each give the player a chance to mold or choose their character. And uh, things can change in character creation, but it's a guideline. Uh, and the families each have certain powers that are unique to the blood that flows through their veins. The other political organization is the Sabbat. One of our players does play a Sabbat character, and she is the one that is known as Evelyn Wolf. And the Sabbat believe more than, of, unlike the Camarilla, the Sabbat believe in bringing vampirism into the open, into the light, so to speak, 
and let humanity know that there is an alpha predator and they deserve to be to rule and be in control. They believe they are better than humanity. They have evolved and this is a gift <clears throat> and they want to lord over humanity. The Camarilla believes that the only way for Kindred to survive because their numbers are not as great as the human population uh, like any predator, they have to keep their numbers down or else they can't feed properly. The camera believes in hiding. That's what the masquerade comes from. So our group, our story is based in a masquerade-style city with a prince that truly believes the masquerade is important. Um, but we do have some factions, even within his own political structure of those seven families or clans that I mentioned, that push buttons. And while they agree on the overall style of what the camera means and you know, staying in the shadows and hunting carefully, that doesn't mean they won't push the buttons or try to get under the prince's skin to rattle him, so to speak. Okay, so just to clarify, London in the year 1886 is under the control of uh, the Camarilla and its agents, right? Correct. That that would be Prince Kiernan Fraser, who you meet. we meet in episode one, who has this, you know, massive meeting that he claims everyone must attend. Uh, much to the chagrin of the people that do attend, they find there's a whole clan not actually present for the most part, the Nosferatu. But um, Kiernan has control of London. The Camarilla is firmly in place. And uh, at the moment, at least, that's what's happening. And we'll see where it goes from there because Kiernan is sort of has his hands full right now with the clan of Toreador. So a lot of things are up in the air. And as you listen to the episodes, that'll become more apparent. So what power does a prince like uh, Kiernan Fraser have? What can he or can he not do while following the laws of the Camarilla? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, so Kiernan has the ability to create, to allow clans to have more children. He keeps control by, because the Camarilla is always looking to stay in the shadows and be secretive, not let humanity know of their existence. He has the right to dictate how many progeny each clan can have inside of a given city. Now, that doesn't mean a vampire from another city may not travel through and spend a week to six months. But as far as creating vampires that are going to be a permanent pull on the resources of a city, uh, the prince has to give a blessing when a child is created. A prince can also control the law. He is the, the, the local law enforcement of a, t of a city or town. So if someone blatantly broke the masquerade by voiding, let's say, one of the traditions of, like, say, hospitality and did damage or violated another vampire's, you know, sanctuary, that's against the code of the Camarilla. The prince would have would be able to invoke a blood hunt and send all the kindred of the city out to destroy that vampire. Um, the only time so princes pretty much have a lot of autonomy. They do have a council that serves them. Uh, they're known as the primogen and yeah. each clan. What's that? What what are the primogen for the kids at home? Yeah, so the primogen are uh, basically his senators or councilmen, his advisors, his you know cabal of wise vampires. Each is represented. Each clan is represented by one primogen, including the, the clan that the prince is form of. So there is seven primogen in a city. They're the elders. They're the ones that keep their own family in check or clan in check. You go to them in times of trouble, like if you're a, a Nosferatu on the run, you would head for Bartholomew. And um, they kind of give him guidance into what's going on in the affairs of the city. So the prince does have that autonomy. But in the Camarilla, so just to give you one other level to that, if a prince makes a mistake or if the prince cannot control a situation, he would reach out to a Justicar. There are only seven Justicars in this world uh, currently basically alive. They are very old. They are super powerful. And they have their operatives, which are basically 
the local marshals that they send in called archons. So if a prince unfortunately has to call upon a Justicar to send archons to his city or an archon enters the city, the city goes into high alert. Even elders who have been around two, three centuries, four centuries panic when an archon shows up because it usually means there's going to be a lot of violence. They, they normally don't leave a city without somebody getting spanked because they're being, you know, they're being sent there and it's, they have a job to do. That job may not become apparent even on night one, but an archon digs around until they find a sin and then they basically extract a price. So the, the term witch hunt comes to mind. Absolutely. Yeah, that's when, if a blood hunt can't find someone, if a prince breaks the traditions and no one can punish him because he's the prince, just a cars and archons are then summoned and all hell will break loose. A city could go into literally a civil war or spiral. Yeah, when they're there. So if I understand this correctly, even though certain families are united by core beliefs, that may sometimes put them at odds with each other, sort of like living in the real world. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there's... There's moderate liberals, moderate Republicans. Um, there's people that are just called moderates. Then they have the you know the extreme left, extreme right. Yeah, it's we're all we're all on the same page. Uh, we're just not sure how we're going to get to the, the end of the chapter. That's very much the Camarilla. Um, the the seven families could be vying for a favor, could be looking to increase feeding grounds, could be interested in opening a new business or having one of their people create a progeny that you know for whatever reasons. And the prince's favor, they will do things or spy on one another or make up lies and do whatever they can to benefit themselves and their power base in the city. Losing a prince could mean a, a clan could be put you know, into a tailspin. Uh, in our story, the clan of Tremere, some people pronounce it Tremere, but uh, whichever, the Tremere are very much in uh, Kiernan's pocket. They've worked very hard because the clan is normally not very trusted because of the way they became vampires. Uh, unlike most of the families that descend from Cain directly as one of the children of Cain, um, who the story tells us is the first vampire ever because God cursed him and he wasn't supposed to die. and not, So that's sort of the background is that Cain was the first vampire. And from him, he made three children and those three children bred all the other vampire lines. So the Tremere did not gain their power through a child of Cain. They diablerized or drank the blood of the the eldest va vampire of a line called Salubre. Salubre don't exist anymore. Uh, the the Tremere in a ritual drew their blood out, and then these human ma magi, very much like Tevi uh, in our story, quaffed his blood of this antediluvian vampire, this ancient. And Tremere were born. Fangs came in, powers came up, and they stole their power. So even in among the Camarilla, Tremere are an outside cast. They do not, most families don't trust them. But in this case, Kiernan uses them as a weapon and tries to basically position them against the other families. So there's a great example. They're all on the same political party. They believe they should stay to the shadows. They are adhered to the traditions because they believe that's the best way to go. But the Tremere will tear you down for any chance at more power. It's just in their blood. That's the way they think. Hmm. So just something that I've been asked by some other people, and I figure we might as well bring it up here. Why 1886? Is there a reason beyond the overall uh, pleasing aesthetic of the Victorian period why you set the game in this time frame? So when I first conceived this story um, a, f a few years ago, about 18 months ago, my eldest daughter was very involved in steampunk. And I love the aesthetic, and I 
wanted she's always been fascinated with vampire uh, as a gaming system she was in her 20s and i i had done some you know small things for her uh while she was home from college and stuff like that on breaks and her she and her friend who uh does a lot of gaming with us were just head over heels in love with that victorian period uh the year 1886 just seemed to fit into some of the historical elements when i run games uh for those of that listen to like cthulhu and cairo they'll see that i do take a lot of bits and pieces from actual storylines that occurred during a period like 1931 you know hitler's rise to power and things of that nature so 1886 will come into play quite a bit in the story it's after mary shelley's frankenstein so we have representation of the flesh golem in one of the stories things of that nature so yeah, there's there's definitely reasons for it as a as a storyteller or keeper that I would do that, but uh, I don't want to give too much away because it will let you know some of the events that may be forthcoming to meet them. But it's really a, an age of criminology. You have uh, the birth of the, the idea of Scotland Yard coming into a play. Uh, locations like Whitechapel were starting to have their own police force. Each district was really policing itself and hiring people that could walk the streets during the day and try to keep. London from being like the Wild West. We we just always think that there was police everywhere. Well, that's not the case. The, a metropolitan police force wasn't designed until, you know, the Victorian area of era. Truly, you had, you know, one guy in charge of an area and you go and complain to him, and then he'd have a couple thugs round you up. But an actual accountable police detective force came into play in this era. So I saw that as a real change for the vampire society. Uh, Kiernan being a Ventruan, so ingrained to the traditions of the Camarilla, this political body, wanting to keep to the shadows, not wanting his, you know, his children or his charges to be seen or found by humans. This would be the time when he'd want to start pulling everyone back. Like, we want to stay in the shadows. Yeah, that's cute. It's no longer cute. Fingerprinting, photography, you know, just all different kinds of deduction logic over magic was coming so quickly into being that he decides to close the fated hellfire club and pull vampires into this you know we are gonna you know you think we're out of the in the shadows now wait till you see where i'm taking us you know we're gonna be actually you know we're not even gonna be there they're gonna never know we're here some families think that's great some not so much so that's sort of why i went with 1886 speaking of uh, pulling things out of history was the hellfire club a real thing so there's uh, yeah, a couple of um, yes, it was. Is it as notorious as it's been portrayed in our story and will be portrayed in the story? Uh, historians are kind of up in the air about that. You know, th- there's rumors and stories that go as far that the rich gentry class of of you know England would gather there and have orgies and it, it very much like um, Eyes Wide Shut. So the Stanley Kubrick film, right? The uh, which was supposed to be based on the concept of the Hellfire Club, the it not and it wasn't just sexual depravity; it was gambling when it was outlawed, and it was behind closed doors business deals and you know wife swapping, and, and it was just it, it was just all this. It, it was the debauchery that the gentrified felt they were entitled to because of their station and their their coin. So if there was no official building of the Hellfire Club, it must have popped up a hundred times around you know England throughout its history. But in in my romanticized heart, where I believe that there is a, a part to people that needs to be dark and has to be let out once in a while on a leash, um, and that's no indication of BDSM. Um, <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying that to play vampire, you're already embracing an inner a child that cries every once in a while in the night to you know whisper in your ear the dark things that people 
need. And I, I think that if if with that part of me, I still believe there was a club like this, and it was probably pretty pretty damn scary. I gotcha. And well, that is uh, pretty cool, actually. I think. Uh, and you know, secret societies have been were really really big in the 19th century and early 20th century, as uh, any casual geek will know um you know that's around the time where alistair crowley was getting really big and stuff like that so yep actually uh he uh may uh, i'm a crowley kind of nut what a what an interesting and terrible person uh at times but fascinating that this man was able to you know live the way he lived um not only unapologetically but the damage and that, that he was able to rot with just his presence i mean he's done he did some amazingly bizarre things with that people said, yeah, go ahead, not a problem. And they kind of went along with it. He had one of those one of those personalities. But yes, uh, Crowley is right around this time. Uh, it's very insightful of you. So keep an eye out for that. Uh-oh. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, back to the questions. Uh, <laughs> as, as people are listening to the uh, show, you can't help but feel that there are already certain preconceived feelings amongst the players, even simply based on a person or vampire's clan. Are they ever able to overcome, or are certain clans always just going to be enemies, regardless of the individual vampire's actions? Again, that's 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 pretty interesting, and I'm I'm glad we touched on this. Yes, so Ashenbrenner is a Toreador, and as you as people listen to the show it's obvious that he's not a traditional toreador the traditional toreadors revel in beauty they want to have the finest clothes the fi- they believe that un- that unlife or you know living this this undead life is just the most wonderful gift they get to spend eternity being young you know seeing the the greatest the fashion change every 15 or 20 years and having the best sculptures and the finest meals from human society so Toreadors embrace things that are beautiful, and they look for others before they bring them over, and it embraces when a vampire is made. So they, won't, they normally won't embrace people that don't follow that simple guideline, because to make someone who you don't want to be around for 500 years pretty stupid, right? I mean, who wants to argue with somebody you know, every decade for the next 500 years? <laughs> so they t- clans tend to look for similar traits in a human being before choosing them for embrace. Now, that doesn't always work. In the case of Ashenbrenner, here's a great example. A struggling artist fits the, you know, clicks the bill. Wants to create art and is not a poser. He's somebody who actually has a gift, clicks the bill. But everywhere else, Ashenbrenner is far from your traditional Toreador. I think we see that in Simona's reactions. So yeah, you, you, just because you're embraced into a clan doesn't always mean that you're the best fit. And sometimes you know, you're brought over and your situation changes. Maybe it breaks you. The thought of the embrace may have sent Ashenbrenner into a tizzy thinking, oh my God, I have to be good at this now for what, the next thousand years? So, you know, you know, who knows? Simona embraced it. Oh, I get to learn new painting styles and travel and do landscapes. Maybe Ash- in the back of Ashenbrenner's mind, he's like, I'm going to be judged for the next, you know, 10 centuries or eight centuries. Maybe it snapped him into being who he is, so distant from his clan. But uh, yeah, you you don't have to fall into it. It's you don't have to do exactly like everybody else playing the character. As a matter of fact, a lot of players look for those little loopholes to make their characters a little bit more three dimensional. But normally, you follow at least some guideline. 
And uh, because you're you're embraced for a reason, you were a cog in the wheel, and that goes incredibly, especially true for the Tremere. In the Tremere, they claim you are a pyramid and you are the bottom brick when you come in, and the whole thing will collapse without a cornerstone, without that one brick. You are one of many, and know your place. And we see Rosamond come into an episode that is going to be airing here in a few weeks super excited because something special happens to her and the rest of the team is like not really sure why this is a big deal but whatever but to her it was the recognition that you know she had gone up the pyramid she was no longer carrying the weight of the clan for you know every night now she could breathe a little bit she she had some freedom which they give as people show their their loyalty so yeah you'll you'll definitely uh, the answer to the question is yes but not always Personally, I think Ashen Brenner would, would have made a fine Malkavian. Oh, he would have been an amazing Malkavian. But he's a great Toreador. I mean, I, I think that this is the... When he told me he wanted to do this whole dark artist as a concept, Paul, um, at, at first I was like, okay, how far do we take this? But just listening to the episode with um, his meat puppet, as he likes to call him, um, Maurice Balderstrad, the the Anglican priest... I've had people write in and just say, okay, that sounded almost sexual. Like <laughs> that was, must've been very difficult to record. And I was like, ah, it kind of came out of nowhere, but I was okay with it. It was fun. So no, he's uh, that character could swing between, and you'll see that a lot of characters sometimes feel like they could be one or two clans, sort of like Harry Potter and the sorting hat. <laughs> you went to Slytherin, but you could have been Gryffindor. Yeah. Or uh, the other way around. Or uh, the other way, well, definitely the other way around. They say, right. <laughs> Gryffindors are only an inch from Slytherin all the time. Oh Yeah. <laughs> Harry Potter was the villain of that entire story. I'm I'm still convinced of that. But now we're getting into an entirely different genre of fandom. <laughs> and that's that is one of the things that I like. Uh one of the reasons why I chose to play a ghoul was because not only as somebody who's new to the gaming system and wanted uh, something that was maybe a little bit more mechanically forgiving, I wanted to come in as somebody who didn't know much about the lore of vampire the masquerade as a character who's not expected to be as familiar with the goings-on in vampire society and you know hopefully from a if you'll pardon the term artistic point of view maybe act as a little bit of a bridge for newer audience members who are jumping on so he can say well you're primo i I don't think I've tried that type of cheese yet. Wait, what exactly are you talking about? <laughs> is is it cured from the north? Um, no, and ghouls are fascinating because um, for those that are that are new, a ghoul is fed vampiric blood but not drained of their own blood and brought across as you know undead. So a ghoul can be a, a dog, Tallulah, a boar, uh, or a human being. And normally you don't ghoul someone unless you trust that they're going to one day aspire to coming across the, that the, that's basically step one now not everybody goes through step one simona would never have been a step one she was such a talent they would have just grabbed her no matter what uh and broke her into their got into their mold if she didn't somehow fit but yeah but many candidates are normally ghouled or and some don't survive it but are ghouled and and then brought across so a ghoul is a human that whose heart has slowed down they gain a little bit more strength usually or some discipline They'll have a very entry-level ability to do something that's a little bit mystical. And uh, they can live much longer. Uh, a, a human figure, it's like almost four years to one. 
with a, with the vampire blood sustaining them. The most clans will keep you ghouled for, or many clans will keep you ghouled for a decade. See how you do, and if you become valuable, or they see there's a fit, or another vampire is destroyed for whatever reason, uh, and they have a space within their their limit among you know the prince's dictates, they'll embrace the best the best ghoul for their clan. There's one clan that's called the Giovanni, where you you have to go through that process the selection process because they only take family members. So it's very rigid and they'll only bring one over every, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. So you can live a whole lifetime and never be chosen. So you, you know, that performance thing is, is very big for certain clans, but Horatio is a ghoul and he's a ghoul to the clan of Malkavian, which is an interesting ghoul to be because I I guess uh, maybe they didn't think he was quite right in the head to begin with. So maybe, Oh, absolutely. I don't know why they would think that he is a man of science. Yes. Um, (laughs) Yes, yes, he is. (laughs) But he's, you know, I, I give you a lot of props for having the forethought to do something like a ghoul because a lot of people don't want to do it. They want the power. They want to play the, the heart, the higher end game. And it does mean that the story especially in this first period, you know, the session of episodes where uh, Hellfire Knights is sitting and it's not going to sit here forever. It does. As we go into, we finish up this part of the story, then we're going to jump several months. And by that point, things will happen for Dr. Jackal where he'll, he'll have more involvement, but you know, in the political world, a ghoul really is, you know, a surf to most kindred. So for him to have an effect on the overall balance of a prince is pretty slim. However, he finds himself caught between the two Toreadors and two vampires whose basic survival depends on Kieran and Fraser, and he—it's going to be interesting to see how you play it. The, for, the foresight to doing it uh, was actually very clever, and I, I applaud you for taking on a, a slightly smaller role in the beginning. But the impact is going to be, I think, tremendous at the end. It's going to be a lot of fun. Ooh, fancy. Um, are there any other uh, little tidbits into the life of vampires at this time and what it means to be a member of this society so our listeners can be more aware of some of the nuances that they may have otherwise missed or that I may have otherwise missed? So, yeah, so feeding. Vampires don't have to kill to feed in this world. In Vampire the Masquerade, uh, second edition, you a human has what they call 10 blood points. Uh, that's how much blood's in their body. As long as they don't lose more than half of their blood, uh, they will be able to recover. Once they're below half, it's a real touch and go. They could slip into a coma, heart could be, fail, uh, things like that. So most kindred tend to dine limitedly. Uh, and th- you're going to hear us discuss blood pool and blood points. So blood po- blood can be used for many things for a vampire enacting disciplines, raising stats. So you may hear somebody say, well, my strength is only a two. The scale is one to five. So a two would be just under an average strength, but they could burn blood out of their own body. They could use it to pump up their strength for a short period of time and all of a sudden be able to rip a door off of a wall or, you know, pick up a very heavy piece of wood and, you know, or a small boulder and throw it at someone. Uh, In modern times, a five strength would be you could take a small moped and beat someone with it. So you can understand the strength difference between a two and a five at that point. So yeah, blood has a lot of mystical properties. And for vampires, they can use it to heal. If they take a bad beating, they can burn blood to take care of their wounds if they're not too grievous. Those are called aggravated wounds, by the way. No one in this game can cause them yet. But an aggravated wound, just even if you burn blood to heal it, it won't close. So like a claw or a talon. 
would be, you know, a, a tearing wound would not be something you could heal quickly. It would take time. Or like a bullet, let's say, you could just pop a blood A point. bullet you could fix in moments, right. But if someone took a rake and, you know, gouged down your bo- your back with it, like an iron construction rake, no, then, you know, you'd be, you'd have those marks for a while. So, yeah, vampires can do a lot with blood, so blood is very important. Blood is based on generation. So, some vampire has two really big things that it looks at for character power. In political power, it's normally the how long you've been in a society. And that most times will dictate a generation. So, for instance, if I've been around four or five hundred years, my generation is probably anywhere between eight and ten. You know, um, maybe even seven to nine is probably a better number. However, somebody could be embraced tomorrow by a level six gen- uh, vampire, six generations from Cain. If that happens, they're only seventh generation, which means that while they're new in terms of chronological era and age, they have the, their blood is far more potent than a vampire of the 10th generation. So politically, if you've been in the city for 300 years and your generation is nine, and a level six vampire comes in and on a whim embraces somebody and their generation is seven, they're still considered a child because they're new. The other vampire at generation nine has more political pull among his peers. But in battle, using disciplines, pumping their strength up, doing the things that a vampire needs to do in times of crisis, the newbie would be far more equipped with the potency of the blood because it's closer to the father, to the progenitor. So when you're listening to vampire, listen to when they discuss how long they've been around and what generation, if they ever claim what it is. Those are the two things that will let you know that's a badass. So those are other things and terms that may come up in the game and will come up in the game. Uh, Other than that, learn, uh, ask questions, send us emails if something pops up that we didn't quite explain. The lexicon, you can go on Wikipedia if you're really interested and you start to fall in love with the show like we hope you do. You can always look up a particular term. But uh, I think we've covered most of what's about to happen. Let me also say, just because we do have Evelyn Wolf playing. So the Camarilla uses Prince, Archon, Justicar, sort of a medieval uh, lexicon for their potential, you know, strong men and leaders and women that, you know, pull forward a, you know, very medieval system. The Sabbat uses the terms bishop, archbishop, cardinal to mock the church. They have this real hatred. Uh, of humanity. And they, like I said earlier, they believe they're better than it and superior to it. So when you hear Evelyn in one of the episodes say, I'm writing to the bishops, I'm going to contact the cardinals and my sire. She's actually saying she's reaching out to her progenitor, which is a name of sire, whether it's male or female. And she's contacting the bishops. That would be like letting princes know what's going on. A cardinal would be equal to like a justicar. Yeah, it's, um, you're talking about, she's alerting the powers that be in her political camp that the city is in turmoil and may, who knows, be ripe for the taking. So when things like this happen, not only do Archons sweep in, but the Sabbat may look at it as a weakness. And if it's not quelled quickly, their agents could start popping up and they could start to shake the foundation and try to take over the city, which would be hellishly bad for everyone. And that's, so, really, uh, that's really interesting, actually, because Evelyn's character had mentioned something about uh, a bishop. I'm not going to say much more because spoilers. Right. But when that happened, I knew she wasn't part of the Camarilla technically. But in my mind, and therefore in Jackal's mind, I thought it was like some 
Roman Catholic branch of vampires. Right. I was like, oh, the Vatican is going to get involved. Oh, this uh, Church of England loving boy is not going to stand for that. Yeah, the Swiss God in London? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it is a mockery of uh, the human institution of the, of the church. And they've been at war with each other for so long that they use the Catholic terminologies and the terminologies of, of, of the Catholic faith sort of as a spit in the face of, you know, the entire um, the entire religion. But it, it, it's not a good thing. Again, just like somebody reached out and contacted you know, an, an archon in our story down the road, perhaps, if someone reaches out to a bishop, you're you're basically alerting people that shit's not right. Keep your ears open. That's, you know, that could be bad because then every Camarilla vampire could be threatened because the Savat children, if they come in, will not be nice to the Malkavian clan. They will not be nice to... You're not going to be like, hey, I'm the boss now. Uh, hand over your, your Camarilla cards. Here's your new Savat cards. No, and... I guess on a closing note, we'll, we'll explain why. So the Camarilla, if a vampire needs to be blood hunted, he is just destroyed. He is, you are not to drink the blood of an elder. That is one of the other traditions. So if I have a fight with you and I'm seventh and you're sixth and somehow I beat you, I'm supposed to just destroy you. Like, that's just it. You cut off the head, do enough damage where they can't come back. The Sabbat believe if a younger can take out an older, even with the help of other youngers, drink his blood. And lower your generation, because if the seven drinks from the six, they now become six. So they are constantly looking for vampires to snack on. So they may send a bunch of 11, 11th generation youngings in, smoke a 10th generation, three of them feed from him, and now they're all 10th, raising the power of their army very quickly. So that's called diablerie. And Evelyn is very aware of it. Evelyn knows it exists. And in the Lasabra clan, it's looked as a as a rite of passage. If your sire does not do right by you, take him out, drink him, and then become a sire yourself. See, the Sabbat have no limits like the Camarilla do. They're going to say, go ahead. You want to embrace 30 people tonight? Knock yourself out. Let them run rampant. Not our problem. They believe in letting their, their, their flock run rampant. A prince won't allow that. And if any Sabbat show up, normally they put them to the sword. But in Evelyn's case, she's been able to make a business out of it. So it's uh, she's walking a fine line. She's there's there's a lot of uh, if people listening, they're going, wow, that's just not a good place to be. You're right. Evelyn is in the she walks a very fine line. So I hope that she sort of sums all that up. Style. She does what? <laughs> she does it with style. Uh, yeah, until she starts to lose her cookies and then we'll see what happens. Poor Anthony. Um, <laughs> Poor Anthony. <laughs> That's awesome. So, Raz, I want to thank you for taking some time this evening to uh, educate the listeners and uh, even myself. I've been kind of immersed in this for a few months now, but I still learned a few things tonight. So, awesome. Hopefully, no. our folks at home will as well. I really appreciate the, uh, the, the your input um, and you're taking your time to do this. You know, the the idea of getting more people interested or perhaps even wanting to go out and try the system uh, with friends is is what we're looking to do the the new system is a little different you will find some some changes they've tried to streamline things take out some things that weren't politically correct uh try to make it a little bit more you know a game of its era as opposed to being a 30 year old rule system and that's just that's just good business but you know vampire has a lot of fun storytelling of you know in it 
And uh, you were the one who brought to my attention, you know, hey, there's people out there who may try to jump on this show from Cthulhu and Cairo or just see it and say, I'd like to try it. And they may have been lost. And I, you know, we don't want anybody to feel lost. So this was a this was a great opportunity. I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, always a pleasure to hang out with you, sir. Oh, thank you. You Same here. All right. So uh, everybody at home, thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you in London. In 1886. <laughs> Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening to Hellfire Nights. You can like, share, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. To help support our network of real play adventure shows, please visit us at patreon.com forward slash the Bardic College. And for as little as $3 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes reels, interviews with players and storytellers, and exclusive adventures featuring your favorite characters from our shows.